Welcome to another episode of I'm Nano. Putting the I in I'm Nano, I'm your host, Irfani. And I'm your other host, Monica. And today we have for our new series, a lit update, Meet the Expert, where we invite scientists to talk about their exciting projects. And today we have Stephanie Abo, a PhD candidate from University of Waterloo, to share her latest paper published in SIAM, Journal of Applied Dynamical Systems. Welcome, future Dr. Stephanie, to the show. Ooh. Excited to have you here. And I hope we can not only cover the paper, but also your thoughts on the intersection between biomathematics, your bread and butter, and nanotechnology, our bread and butter. So I think this is mm-hmm. going to be a very, very interesting conversation. Um, so Stephanie, welcome. Can you introduce your amazing self? Well, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Um, so I'm a PhD student in applied mathematics at the University of Waterloo, and I'm doing research in what is called mathematical and computational biology. So a lot of my interest when it comes to research and modeling really fall in the realm of metabolism and how do we understand the physiology of the body? How does this relate to different pathological states like diabetes, for instance, or circadian disruption, which is the breakdown of our body clock. And so a lot of my work is integrating that into multi-scale models that take into account different parts of the body and understanding how we can use those models to maybe inform drug development and clinical Mm -hmm. pharmacology. Wow. That's about me. That's really exciting. So just to recap, what you're doing is mainly like modeling how the body works and then hopefully use that to predict what could happen once we introduce additional factors into it. Exactly. So a lot mm-hmm. of the modeling is done at um, at the biochemical level. So we look at mm-hmm. different metabolites, different substrates. We also look at genes. And so it's interesting to think about once we understand what is happening at that level, if you start introducing, say, pathogen from an infection, for instance, mm-hmm. how does the already existing state of the body allow maybe that pathogen to multiply and progress? Or how will a drug evolve in that setting and Mm -hmm. is there maybe an optimal way to administer drug to you know ameliorate uh, the absorption rate or to ameliorate the effect of that on the body and similarly with circadian rhythms too is there is there an optimal time of the day for you maybe to exercise or eat and be feeding etc wow that's really cool because i mean the physiology is such a complex system you know there's it just sounds very complex once you put everything together. That yeah, is very true. Also, like, how many people are the same starting off in your model? Like, you know, are you doing like this ideal human, or like, you know, there's so many variables in each person between you and me and Irfani, and then everyone listening to the show, right? Like, that's crazy. Yes, absolutely. So there is a lot of abstraction, right? A lot of them are models, like you said, they're ideal in the sense that they Mm -hmm. represent an average individual. Um, And so a lot of these parameters that would define an individual at the start can be varied. And that's also where model, the quality of the model comes into place, because essentially you want a model where by changing or varying those parameters that would represent an individual, you should be able to capture 
similar dynamics. So the model shouldn't be predicting, you know, widely different outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, unless we start tapping into, you know, pathological states, then yes. But for a normal mm-hmm. individual, um, we have this representation. That's again a much of a simplification of what really happens in people. There right. is a different a slightly adjacent branch of modeling where they would look at virtual population. So their goal is not to have that ideal patient, but to have a collection of models that would represent, say, 80, 90% of the of the population. We're so excited to kind of pick your brain. But what about um do you do as like when you're not doing all your research and your modeling stuff? Is there like what are your interests and your other hobbies? Like is there um uh more um I guess casually, what do you do on the side when you're not doing all this amazing um mathematical models? Oh yes, well. <laughs> When I'm not, I suppose when I'm not doing research, most of my time is spent um, la- languages. I will start with languages. Like I really enjoy languages, right? So being part of language groups, uh, whether it's for French or Spanish, it's something that I very much enjoy. Um, reading as well. So mm-hmm. I, funny enough, I, I read a lot of true stories. So I'm not so much into fiction, right? So I read like biographies or like philosophy. Oh, sweet. But yeah, it's just because sometimes it's so far off that you really just need to like, so fiction is interesting, but those books just kind of take me away mm-hmm. faster and more easily from, you know, from my state of mind. So I really enjoy uh, autobiographies, biographies in general. I'm just looking at my shelf right now and there are some fiction books, um, but most of them are either rooted in philosophy or sociology um do you have any recommendations for us and our listeners Uh, absolutely so there is a great book this one is an autobiography it's called educated by tara west oh i have Um, that oh yes this is yeah great one it is Um, this one during covid rereading it right now as a matter of fact oh yeah (laughs) yes it's so good um i'm also a very big fan of there's a series of 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 uh, books philosophical books by an a greek philosopher called cicero so he has a very particular treatise called on the good life which is all the principles at the time of what morality would be or what morality should be and it's interesting to see how that has evolved you know from mm-hmm. that period of time until now wow yeah, so for our listeners, those are really good recommendations. Go check them out. Um, and I personally have one of those books, which is really great. So I can vouch for that. Yeah, and um, like I guess that's also um it, it goes to show how in-depth of an intellectual you are because morality has a lot of things mm-hmm. that you know can be affected by the individual, and each individual has a different sense of morality, kind of like I guess in your research, each individual has a different baseline. <laughs> Point. so that's really that's really interesting yes well I always tell myself you know if I were to go back to school if I'm if I wasn't doing you know mathematics what would I be doing and I think it would either be history philosophy or philosophy wow I yes. can totally see that for sure yeah I, I can you exude this you know very intelligent philosophical aura 
coming oh, from you. That's probably <laughs> yes. one of the best compliments yes. I've had. Absolutely. Yes. Um, big, you're uh, such an inspiration and role model for females in STEM. So we love this. And um, there's also, I want to add on to that because there was a nature paper like one of the casual ones published like at the end of the nature magazine, sometimes um, students can publish their own PhD candidates or um, postdocs can publish a little blurb or excerpt that's a little bit more um, casual for a broad audience. And so one of the ones from 2016 was like, read broadly and read outside your field. Um, so I feel like you're a perfect embodiment mm -hmm. of you're a PhD, you should, it's, doctorate of philosophy right you gotta mm -hmm. read broadly and read outside your field to gain depth and perspective so perfect example yeah. of doing that thank you stephanie that's great all right so let's pick your brains now we're gonna <laughs> dive in into yeah. your paper <laughs> uh it's very interestingly titled because this is really you know it it makes me question it and I want to get more information about it so your new paper it's titled can the clocks tick together despite the noise stochastic simulations and analysis it's very lit as of course we're going to talk about it and can you talk us through what the title is and the main importance of the paper oh yes absolutely so so yeah so this title came about because we're really trying to convey you know, the amount of disturbances we put our bodies through. So that's what we meant by despite the noise. And the mm. clocks here refer to the circadian clocks. So everyone pretty much has what we call a master clock in the brain. It's a group of neurons that receive light input from the sun as the main signal, but then it can receive light input from any light source, really. Um, even when you're sleeping, you know, some light light would still go through your eye and activate that group of neurons. And so these are the clocks that we're referring to because they receive timing and they propagate that signal to the rest of the body. And that's what allows you to kind of calibrate yourself with time of day and your, your hunger cues will come in, mm -hmm. your sleeping cues, rather you'll start feeling drowsy at nighttime or having a high rise in cortisol in the morning to make you more apt for the day and things like that. So that's what we're referring to by clots. It's that mm -hmm. master clock we have in the brain. Mm -hmm. And despite the noise, noise here refers to disruptions, right? Because you have to think about daily habits and the way we actually have evolved to leave, right? Society as it stands today, it's everything but the nine to five, the typical nine to five, even when you work in nine to five, you know, we scroll on our phone when our body is supposed mm -hmm. to be turning down. You know, you wake up and within the first hour of you waking up, you're already on a screen or you're mm -hmm. doing something. And if you're into, if you travel a lot, then you're exposed to something called chronic jet lag. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're moving time zones, right? So this light signal is also being disrupted. So the real question is, how does the body clock remain functional when we put it through so much disruption mm. and okay. and so yes that was the main aim of the paper and i suppose okay. the main importance of circadian rhythms and the circadian clock in general is that although i've said we have a master clock virtually every cell in our body has a circadian rhythm every cell yes it's not a one whole functioning unique oh my god because i think like yeah, sorry, um, like to interrupt, but it's 
quite baffling to me to think that every single cell in your body has its own rhythm because I thought they were working as a whole unit. Like you said, there's a master clock in your brain yes. and they're all working together. How how can each cell have its own circadian rhythm? Yeah, so every cell is a clock on its own and it pretty much integrates with the cell around it and also receives the major signal from the brain to remain calibrated. So for instance, your liver cell, you know, they have their circadian rhythm. So they're mostly there to anticipate feeding cues right, and prompt the production of those hormones. So the liver will act as a hub. Your muscle cells as well have their own circadian rhythm. In fact, from that standpoint, it would be more optimal to exercise in the late afternoon around 3.30 or 4.30 based on the state of the muscle cells at that time, yes. And so that's what I mean by virtually every cell in your body is a clock. Now you have to get them to work together. So once you understand this, then you realize that external inputs like exercise can be a disruptor. Feeding can be a disruptor. Mm-hmm. Light can be a disruptor to the brain because the brain coordinates all of these clocks, right? But it can also act independently. So then the importance right. of it is you need to align your lifestyle somehow to your physiology to make sure that all of these processes and these hubs can align with the brain signal because otherwise they mismatch. And mm-hmm. when they start to mismatch is when you start to see um, the development of certain diseases like diabetes, for instance, right? Has been shown that that circadian disruption can in part lead to the onset of diabetes and certain mm-hmm. memory issues as well can come from that and certain cancers as well. Okay, so basically if you disrupt the circadian rhythm of different parts of your body can lead to diseases. That's what the main point is. Yes. So, and at a much, much more fragile state. I see. So you said that you have to exercise between 3.30 to 4. <laughs> so <laughs> that means if I exercise at 6, I'm putting my body not in a good state, even though I'm exercising, I'm actually hurting it. No, no, I I want to emphasize that the benefits of exercise probably outweigh the disruption that will be induced by it. But in terms of optimality, then it's more optimal to do it in the afternoon, right? But again, that's on the assumption that you have, you know, um, irregular, you know, chronotype. So you would qualify as an early bird. You know, some people are actually night owls. So that might be a little bit different for them as well. Right. So individually, they have their own circadian rhythm, but as a whole collective humanity, there yeah. is that 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 innate, you know, master circadian rhythm, right? But then, even if we change it ourselves, that is still okay. That is still okay. So you can actually shift your your circadian rhythm. You can untrain it if you constantly work night shifts, mm-hmm. but during the day, what's going to happen is you're going to pretty much reverse your circadian rhythm. So you're going to be active at night. You're going to mm-hmm. feel and you know rise in energy at night and start to feel naturally drowsy during the day, even if you're not working that day, right? Because mm-hmm. you've adapted your cycle to that pattern. So right. the question is not, you know, your body is very resilient. It will do that, right? But because the brain doesn't work in isolation, it works with every other organ. Then right. you also ask yourself the question, you know, your pancreas produces insulin and glucagon that allow you to maintain your blood glucose 
is the pancreas and glucagon, you know, optimally active at nighttime if you're not eating? You know, not really. So if you start to give, if you start to feed at night, yes, you've shifted your brain clock, right? Okay. Yeah. But still your physiology is expecting food to come in mm -hmm. the daytime hours, not during the nighttime hours. Right. Right. So yeah. That's where the mismatch really comes in. And that's where sometimes that will lead to metabolic disorders, right? Because then the body's not responding very well. Yeah. Interesting. Is, that's fascinating. And yeah. I guess it shows this circadian master clock is extremely important, like for a mental, physical, emotional well-being. And so I guess when do, when when can we start, I guess, kind of being in tune with our this master clock that we have? Does it start as babies? Does it start when we're like a little kids or like, you know, do I wait until I'm in college that I kind of be in tune with my body? Um, is there any advice you can give on that? Yes, I can see why college kids in general would, um, college students in general would, yeah, would not be in tune with their posture. But essentially, it's it's innate, right? We've evolved to have that circadian rhythm. So we all start with, let's say, fresh, freshly calibrated, synchronized, in line with the sun cycle type of clock, <laughs> right? And and you can see that although it's fine-tuned, it evolves with time, right? Because some processes will override that. If you take a newborn, although they have that circadian rhythm, right? It's they've not yet been exposed to to enough of that synchronizing agent, which is the light signal, right? For them to, you know, sleep on patterns that would be what a regular adult would sleep on, right? But that's because the physiology of the sleep of a newborn overrides the need for that circadian, for that strict circadian pattern of being active mm -hmm. during the day and being asleep during the nighttime, right? So, but then it evolves because then you know, now they're exposed to light and they grow older. The, the reliance on sleep is not so much. So eventually you calibrate to a point where you align yourself very well with the light dark cycle. And mm -hmm. I think essentially when, when we talk about circadian rhythms, a lot of time people will think that they need to drastically change their lives. And I don't think that's the point. I think the point is to try as much as possible to be consistent because mm -hmm. your body is a very it has a routine. Mm -hmm. We may not like routines ourselves, but the body itself is calibrated to follow the same processes every day and it keeps cycling. You know, the cell cycle is very much the same thing every day. Mm -hmm. So what you really want to do from, a, you know, keeping your physiology in check is just make sure that you don't fall at any of the two extremes, right? Limit screen time when it's dark, right? Because when it's dark out, essentially you want to limit the exposure to light and also think about feeding habits, right? Instead of spreading meals all throughout the day, right? Is there a way for you to eat during, you know, daylight hours and maybe a little bit later into the evening, but not have meals very close to bedtime, right? And also go out and have some sunlight. Actual sunlight is, yeah. is very good too, because it's the strongest synchronizer for your brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about sunlight, it just brings up to my mind that some people live in places where during the winter you don't get much sunlight. So does that does that 
change their circadian rhythm, like winter and summer? Yes. Oh, that's an excellent question. So yes and no. No, because you have an intrinsic rhythm. So even if you were in complete darkness, your body would continue at first to follow that circadian pattern. Mm -hmm. Because you pretty much, it's encoded for you to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, there will start to be a small lag, right? Because naturally the circadian rhythm is slightly longer than 24 hours in humans. And it's the light signal that calibrates you and kind of keeps you closer to that 24 hour mark, right? Constantly. So once you remove the exposure to light, either artificial or real light, once you remove that exposure, your circadian cycle, instead of being 24 hours or close to it at least, will start to get longer. Longer? will start to get longer. So to answer your question, if you... um. If you're not exposed to light for a very long period, essentially what happens is you will elongate the period of that circadian cycle. Mm. So you might run a 26-hour cycle or a 27-hour cycle, right? So you might start waking up later than you normally would mm-hmm. because now this this idea of a day for your body is now a lot longer than it would if you had the light signal to constantly bring you back and synchronize mm-hmm. you to the mm-hmm. sun cycle. And so this becomes an issue, for instance, in in blind individuals, mm-hmm. right? Because then you're talking about people living in different areas of the world, but what if you're permanently blind? Right, right. Do you have a circadian rhythm and the answer is yes, right? But then we do know that there are, they also need to take certain drugs, right, to allow their body to remain synchronized and to keep oh, that really? in balance yes oh okay so it's oh, an innate okay. thing but i guess the 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 synchronizing factor of flight is such a huge important aspect to maintaining that rhythm absolutely interesting, interesting. and then one thing i noticed too is that um you mentioned oh it's more than 24 hours our circadian room rhythm so that means i'm thinking humans would be perfectly adapted for mars because a day on mars is is a little bit longer than 24 hours i think we're looking at 25 so basically what you're saying is we can make it on another planet Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely i never thought about it this way but you know what you've got you've got an argument there because you know you you might have noticed it it's easier to travel you're right Wes, because Yes, you, the time the time difference, right? Because your circadian rhythm is slightly longer than twenty four hours, right? By moving time zones and then elongating that, it's easier for you to adapt. You know, if the if you have to make the circadian pattern even longer than it is for you to travel east, where all of a sudden you shorten the circadian rhythm mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you lose hours and then mm-hmm. you need to adapt. So yes, there is an argument to be made that we might actually be fit to live on on Mars. Absolutely. Wow. Wonderful. We'll we'll get right on that with NASA and everybody. (laughs) Your next stage of research, right? That's your postdoc. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There you go. And um, so I wanted to ask about a couple of like terrifying concepts, just because I hear in your your paper had um, this term called resonance. And resonance in chemistry, we're looking at like the movement of electrons. 
Okay. Is that something similar that you have in your work or is it a completely different meaning? Well, I think I think we can still draw a parallel between the two, but I'll I'll tell you what resonance um means at least in in my field. So when we talk about resonance, it's that property that characterizes how well a system will respond to a periodic or cyclic input. Right. So to those frequencies. And so there is a range of frequency where if you apply an input to a system, it will respond best. And there are frequencies at which if you if you apply those frequencies to the system, it will respond to a lesser extent. So the concept of resonance pretty much means that your system, or at least in this case, neurons, from the biochemical standpoint, the chemicals will display large amplitudes so the oscillation will display very large amplitude at certain frequencies because essentially the neurons communicate with each other through neurotransmitters. And that neurotransmitter acts as a signal that's being delivered at a specific frequency. So when we talk about resonance in the context of the modeling that we do, it's really, it's an entrainment property of neurons being entrained by each other because each neuron is pretty much evolves at a certain frequency. So at what frequency or what range of frequencies does this group of neurons respond best to the signal that is sent to them? So that's what we mean by resonance. Mm -hmm. um, Perfect. Thank you for clarifying. And yeah, I guess there's some similarities. It's movement of your electrical brain signals, I guess, in a way, responding to one another. Whereas in chemistry, we talk about it in electrons moving in response to one another. So of yes using the same term but completely different fields so it's always it's nice to clarify because i read it and i'm like hmm, i don't i don't know i can't picture the structures right so great for having you clarify thank you absolutely yeah this is making me really think about my life and my schedule and everything because <laughs> you're i've never thought about it like this i kind of just think about how okay, I, I get up, I have work to do, I do this and this and this, and then try to squeeze in some exercise time. But then now you're telling me that I should find a routine that helps my body to to basically withstand any possible damage in the future. So I think, so the takeaway from this for me is I need to appreciate my body's internal circadian rhythm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your body is your temple. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, we're all guilty of staying up late. And then sometimes you don't want to, but you kind of have to. You have a deadline the next day. I mean, I'm guilty of that so many times. And it's hard sometimes to to follow routine. But, yeah, this is, yeah. This is fascinating. Yes, and, and we have, I have to, I have to emphasize that the body is indeed very resilient. So it 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 takes a lot, you know, to break it. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, funny enough, it takes very little to break it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Know? So okay. but but uh -huh. for the most part is we you want to think about it as an average over time. So it's not having one disruption today is fine having a disruption here and there is is okay the body's resilient enough but on average you know mm -hmm. over the span of a couple of months it's I true that 
we should strive to having some sort of a routine. Thank you for shedding light on this. This is something that most people probably don't think about because they just kind of go through the day, see what happens. And then if your body tells you to, you're hungry or you're sleepy, you just follow what your body tells you. But you don't really think about, you know, no, I shouldn't eat at this time. Um, sometimes I've, hear, I've heard about that and I just think it's a fad, but now there's actually a scientific backup to this. So I should, I should consider that <laughs> uh, more seriously. Yeah, you've said something here that's very important, which is actually listening to your body. Mm-hmm. which I don't I I find it hard for me to do you know it's it's more so psychological of it's 1 p.m I'm gonna have my lunch then right right I actually hungry to eat lunch you know mm-hmm. the same eat when you're actually hungry it's it's true because mm-hmm. your hunger hormone will start you know being produced a couple of hours prior and then you start to feel hunger and then you should eat so mm-hmm. following and being in tune with those body cues I, I'd say is more important than trying to regiment your day by the hour because mm-hmm. every day too there's slight variation right in not every day is lasting 24 hours so we have those slight variations as well so so yeah being in tune with your body signals I'd say is way more important than, than trying to be so cerebral and regimented with mm-hmm. your schedule that you you miss out on on what's actually happening Right, mm-hmm. right. And then like, well, when I'm tired, I go grab a coffee instead of a nap too, right? So I guess, you know, sometimes you just can't sleep from yeah. work to do. Um, unless you're in Italy, I guess, or Spain, and you got siesta time around one. <laughs> um, but also, I guess for biological men and women too, like we're on a 28, 30 day cycle versus men are on a 24 hour cycle-ish. Like, so even physiologically, like that's a big XY versus XX difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's also a contributing factor when you do your research. Um, do you look at the gender of the starting individuals at all? So, yes. Yeah, so we, we do look at sex differences a lot in the work that we do. And it's an interesting point that you brought about because back to that concept of uh, resonance, right? So you have those two cycles, right? Those two rhythms in women so the circadian rhythm, but also what you what we call the menstrual cycle that kind of overlap, right? Yeah. And it's it'd be interesting to understand how one affects the other. Mm. Or maybe they each interact with each other and each affect each other, right? So it, that would be interesting. I don't know of research that I've looked specifically at the interaction between the two cycles. There is some research that would look at maybe performance at different points in the menstrual cycle in athletes, for example. But at the very much biochemical level, it would be interesting if we could see what's really happening mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. at the level of the hormones too. Um, research-wise that I've conducted myself, it was a study where we looked at the immune response to a bacterial infection in men and women they're in shift workers, males and females. And so that took into account um, the differences in the sex hormones and how that led to differences in the expression of those circadian genes. And what we found from this study, again, it's a mathematical model, so it's an abstraction of reality and it gives us approximation, but the findings were as follows, that if you're a shift worker who works only night shift, and you're a woman and you get infected, usually what happens is that the infection 
is going to be latent for some time. And because it's latent, it takes you longer to fight off the infection. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. However, what we observed in the male model or the male version of the model is that although they're doing the same thing, they work night shifts. That's how we, we initialize the model the male are more susceptible to sepsis. So the replication number is so high that very often what happens is that there's an overload, the bacterial multiplication is high and then they become more susceptible to sepsis, Mm -hmm. right? Very early on. So it's interesting, even at a mathematical, you know, from a mathematical standpoint to see what the hypothesis could be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. And informed experiments for sure. Yeah, very That's interesting really... along those lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, wow. This is all really interesting. Um, I guess we'll get to basically asking about how you feel and how <laughs> how the process was like just, you know, understanding all of this together and what was like your favorite part in doing all these research because you know, we don't know anything about this, but we're just like, wow, this is fascinating. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but yeah. it's how what is what's it like doing these models and mm-hmm. enjoy doing this this modeling i guess and w- how did you put this paper together oh that's a great question too it's i suppose especially with this study there was a little bit of a trade off right because we're looking at neurons um we're thinking about what is happening at the so when you think about neurons we had to there are two ways to think about it. There are, neurons produce electrical signal. That's usually how we think of neurons, electrical mm-hmm, electrical, mm-hmm. and that's how they communicate with each other. However, we're interested in circadian rhythm. So the electrical activity, right, happens at the level of milliseconds. The circadian rhythm right. is over the span of hours. So only there, there's such a large difference, right? So if you want to study the chemical activity, right, and the, the gene activity of those circadian genes, then we need to think about the chemical signals, right? And think about how the mRNA is translated into a protein, that protein kind of is relocated into the nucleus and all of that path is really what leads to the production of those circadian genes. So that was the first step, it's to identify at what scale are we actually working? Mm -hmm. What time scale are we working at? And we're working at the circadian time scale, okay. And then there's the question of, how granular does the model need to be? How much physiology do we need to capture? How much exact you know, behavior do we need to capture? Because this will also constrain the numerical simulation. So this is an, an instance when, when we use, so I said we, we develop a lot of uh, biophysiological models that look at a lot at the physiology and are extremely detailed. This is a model where we really went into into the abstraction. It's called a phenomenological model. So it looks at the empirical information that we know. So it's the simplest architecture that we could use to represent a neuron. And the reason we do that in this case, it's because when you think about brain activity, although it's interesting what happens at the level of a single neuron, it's really what happens at the population level what happens when you couple 10,000, 100,000 of them? And because we want this macroscopic uh, picture, right? It's not so necessary to have a bird's eye view on every single process that happens because it gets what we call, you know, the variation, right? Kind of 
will be smoothed and you think about it as an average. Mm -hmm. So then we saw a very simple model. And then we assume that the if every single, at least the set of equation we use to represent a neuron, then we can make the, the hypothesis. Well, what happens when you have a sufficiently large number of interacting neurons? Mm -hmm. Then you can derive a subsequent equation that will represent pretty much the average in the network. And that's what this paper is about is how mm -hmm. does the average dynamic, the average evolution in a network of circadian neuron is affected by noise? So their collective activity. And so once we got to that point, then, um, and then I can maybe give a little bit more details about what the techniques are. So sure. yeah, the initial modeling, we use ordinary differential equations. And Monica had mentioned IBM model, individual-based model. So that's what we do. Even in population dynamics and epidemiology, you can think of single agents. So that's what we do. We think of single cells. And then mm -hmm. we think about how the cells communicate with each other. So we add a coupling between each cell. But then you can derive what we call a continuum model, a macroscopic description, which is um, a representation of what the average evolution would be. So by assuming that N is large enough, that the number of interacting particles is large enough, you can derive an equation from this IBM model, an equation that pretty much gives you the probability. Mm -hmm. right? The solution to that equation is essentially the probability of finding a neuron at a specific state, right? Mm -hmm. In a circadian cycle, mm -hmm. right? And that probability Right, it comes. It comes with a mean. It comes with variance. So it also gives you a little bit more information that, on average, you find neurons at this state of the circadian, you know, cycle. But also, it comes with some variance to it. Right. Perfect. That's, so that's, that's exactly what we did in this paper. And then the next step was, well, once you have a PDE that you have to solve, then you have to think about the numerical scheme, right? Because a lot of these studies can take. A very long time to the numerical complexity is high, right? For a PD in 3D. So then you have to think about the numerical algorithm that you're going to use and the type of simulations. What should you change and vary to really extract meaning from the outcome, from the results, right? So, mm -hmm. and then once you get there, it's really trial and error. You'll simulate results that you understand, but then you have to ask yourself the question. When experts who are non-experts in my field look at the spectra, do they understand what I'm trying to communicate? Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if the answer is no, then you need to go through a second round of numerical simulations or reframe how you present those results so that it's communicable to um, other different audiences, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yes. And uh, it's really interesting because the numbers you get, they're mostly... I guess this is a probability or a likelihood. And mm -hmm. I think that really highlights the difference between, you know, your grade school mathematics where one plus one equals two, <laughs> and it's always going to be that. And then your university level mathematics, when you get to grad school, you're talking probabilities mm -hmm. and extrapolating information and not being a hundred percent sure of maybe this is the reason why we're doing something but we're probably going to say it's this way and not this way is that kind of how research in grad school in mathematics works yeah yes I suppose that's how it works too and it's 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 really about you know being able to have enough confidence in your result 
but still see the shortcomings of your mm -hmm. approach that you can say, this is what we're predicting. And this is how the result might change if we had used a different technique, right? And, and, and this way it allows you to almost separate the physiological behavior from the error that's introduced by the modeling technique. Right, because if you can, if you can look at your model and you can look at the results and you can say, you know, if we had used this technique, this is what would have happened. Right, then the difference is due to the model, but what's common to the two, right, right, might be a result of the physiology, and so that's where it becomes mm -hmm. interesting, and you can really start putting forth hypotheses for people to test in the lab, because essentially, you know, in in math biology. We're there to bring predictions. The right. results that we bring are not ground truth, right? We're making mm -hmm. predictions and we're saying this is likely to happen. And we can say that it's likely to happen with certain level of confidence, right? Based on X, Y, Z. Now, if you are to test it in the lab, we would recommend this type of experiment, right? Because right? we have this bird's eye view on systems that experimentalists may not be able to to do like if you take a drug drug development for instance they have dozens of candidates yes. it's hard and it's time consuming it's you know resource consuming in terms of money to test all of them mm -hmm. but if you have a sufficiently detailed model where you can simulate what each drug does mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you can already make a pre-selection of what the top three top five would be and say how about we start with these five and really mm -hmm. that's where, you know, modelers and experimentalists can come together and, and answer some of these questions. Very fundamental questions and yeah. very applicable to great for industry as well. If you're doing, because we, we did have a discussion on industrial chemistry and how there's so many drug candidates and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in grad school, we make all these different types of molecules. If you're the kind of synthetic chemist, but a lot of them don't make it out because they're like 56 steps novel synthesis. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that's like, like you said, this is where modeling and experimentation can come together regardless mm -hmm. of field um, as well. So that's kind of very interdisciplinary. And I think that, creates a good segue mm -hmm. into, well, what about nanotechnology? How does nanotech, nanoscience fit in with these, this bio, your field of biomathematics and also mathematics in general and all this modeling? Like, do you see, do you see a future bridging the two? Like, how do you foresee things coming together or are they already together? We just haven't discussed it yet. So yeah, so but but this is an excellent question because we've we've talked before about that multi-scale modeling, you know, how granular do you want to get? Right. And in in a number of cases, right, whether it's mathematical biology or nanotechnology, right, the interest in the field is really lies with going down all the way to those building blocks where maybe I know maybe for you in your area of research, you would be more analyzing RNA structures, right, at the nanoscales, right? So when you think about those nanostructures, the way I see mathematical biology integrating with this is that we can now have models that inform behavior across multi multiple scales, right? So at the, at the nanoscales, you're looking at extremely small 
particles evolving both at the temporal and spatial scale. And mathematically, this is something you can resolve, right? And think about what happens at the mesoscopic scale, right? That intermediate scale, when you look at the interaction between a certain number of cells per se, right? I know there is some research, I'm not too familiar with the area, but one thing I've always found fascinating is how um, nanotechnology has been evolving in cancer research, you know, mm -hmm. and, and also um, um, resistance, right? Resistance to certain drugs. And what I know, at least what I foresee for the interaction of these two fields is that once we understand a little bit how, you know, structures evolve at that nanoscales, whether it's at the level of RNA or at the cell cycle level, then there is something that can be done about understanding how a group of small elements evolve in both space and time, at least from a mathematical perspective, right? And how that behavior can be conducive to resistance to drugs, right? And resistance to drug is something also we can think about how do we model that mathematically? But if we can integrate biomathematics with nanotechnology simultaneously mm. as we go through this. So I'm not saying, you know, we do, we we let nanotechnology evolve and then when we're more confident about structures, then we do mathematical modeling for prediction. I'm saying bringing them together, mm. even at the level of experimentation, right? Yeah. If you're looking at maybe certain structures or nanostructures, then you can ask a mathemat mathematician or a modeler to look at, well, what are the what are the key characteristics if we look at the interaction between these nanostructures, you know, in a group, mm -hmm. if you have to bring them together, right? Mm -hmm. And what is the type of, maybe what is the type of interaction that will make it more robust? That's also a question you can ask. How do they need to be, we talked about, you know, atoms, electrons um, re resonating to each other, right? So what does the signal need to be between the two for that, for those structures to be as robust as they can be? Mm -hmm. Because that allows you, that gives you the mathematical freedom to test different coupling mechanisms right. and see what coupling mechanism qualitatively gives you the stronger um, structure. And then that's feedback that you can bring back to the experimentalist or people in that area of research and kind of building off of each other. Um, I'm not sure I've answered that. I think that was a great answer. Mm -hmm. uh, that was phenomenal. And I also can see that as like, maybe you have your own consulting business, Stephanie, because then you can, all the, all the nanotech startups are gonna want a piece of what you've just said and then model for them so that mm -hmm. they get their uh, accurate information and then they're not doing so much trial and error as well. So okay. uh, maybe Silicon Valley wants to be Stephanie Oh, she's done her doctorate. That's amazing. No, I can totally see that happening for you. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. No, but definitely I think, you know, the main driving force besides liking mathematics, I think that there is definitely something there when you think about what those models represent, because essentially we're trying to represent reality to some extent, mm -hmm. right? So even if you're trying to bioengineer delivery of certain drugs, I'm always amazed when I see, um, you know, in, in biotech in general, people thinking about what are the properties, you know, of this substrate, what are the properties of this uh, compound that we're investigating that will lead to the best outcome 
or to the worst outcome for that matter yes, it too. Could be a worst outcome, and then we could be avoiding that worst outcome. And we right. could be avoiding that right. worst outcome, yeah. right? And and that's really where both you know mathematicians, biomathematicians, and even computer scientists can come together to develop structures that allow us to do testing, right? Can we think about maybe at the mathematical level degradation rates or production rates or you know um, which compounds should you couple together? to get, yes. get certain yes. results. And then you move on to how do you simulate that effectively so that it represents a true you know, physiological setting? Then you have to think about the numerical simulation, right? What type of algorithm do you need to properly simulate that, mm -hmm. et cetera? So I think there is definitely, there's a lot of room for collaboration. Yes. And sure. I hope that that's something we see more in the coming years as well. Oh yeah, I hope so as well. And to avoid, as you said, the bad outcomes. <laughs> that that's what we want. We we don't want another COVID either. Like we want to avoid any sort of uh, <laughs> absolutely yes. This is such a great conversation, though. It's a really nice fireside chat on what you've been doing and working so hard on. So we appreciate yeah, and it's also good for us to like think a little bit differently than what we usually think this i mean usually we talk about different materials or something but it's still within the realm of nanotechnology this is a bit out there for us and it's great so that we can yes. think about things in a different perspective and right. you know just stir our brain a little bit <laughs> and i'm very glad to be here and to have gotten the opportunity to even both share my work but also that thinking exercise like you just said to think about how what I do can link up to what you do mm -hmm. and how the two can really evolve together. That's thought work that we don't, I don't do very often, right? Like I do it for my area of study and I think about how it links to biology, but we're all kind of working on the same problems, right? And mm -hmm. if you think about it. Yeah. 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 Different views on the same problems. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for sharing your amazing work and having this discussion. I think it's definitely beneficial for all our, our listeners on top of what well, just us um, we look forward to following your progress you know where all this intersection between biomathematics and maybe in the future nanotechnology uh, can take <laughs> us yeah, yeah. Um, all right everyone that is all the nano for today take care and stay curious